Welcome to the Teaching in Tech podcast with Alan and Chad. This podcast was developed with teachers in mind. We're glad to have you joining us on the podcast today where we will dive into everything related to teaching, learning, and technology integration. Our goal is to inspire passion in teachers by discussing strategies and activities that have been successful in the classroom, along with ways to integrate technology for maximum student engagement. In each episode, we want to look at things teachers are doing that are working, detailing teaching strategies, and technology integration ideas. Also, special guests will join us to share their own strategies that have been successful with their learners. If you're enjoying the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a review. So, Alan, in the past when we had a chance to share an office uh, together working as part of the instructional team, uh, your role at the time was a disciplinary literacy coach, but on more than one occasion people came by and I heard them refer to your position as a digital literacy coach, which is is clearly not your role. Uh, So to get started today, can you tell us a little bit about what disciplinary literacy has to do with? Yeah, a little bit different than digital literacy, uh, both of which... Uh, we're incorporated at the high school. Digital literacy is a, a separate class. Disciplinary literacy is our conceptual framework for instruction. Uh, it's how, as a teacher, and when we're content specialists, do we invite students to become apprentices within our discipline? You know, not to oversimplify it, but looking, how do we engage students in reading, writing, speaking, and thinking like one of the specialists in our fields? You know, this uh, concept of literacy, obviously, in our, our profession is not a new thing. Um, you know, I think back to, it's probably been almost 15 years ago now, when I was teaching middle school science in Northwest Ohio, one of the roles I took on was becoming part of a literacy committee in our building, and we had teachers from a, a variety of different disciplines. Uh, and we spent a lot of time working with uh, a committee from Columbus at the Ohio Resource Center looking at some of these ways to break down uh, vocabulary words, to look at reading within context. And so at that point, uh, the focus was still on the different disciplines. uh, But what we didn't really get to the point of is, as you talked about making kids apprentices um, in, in whatever subject area we're talking about, we really never quite got that far. But there's one thing that stood out to me as the, as uh, we went through that work uh, and being part of that committee. A lot of teachers were resistant to it because when they heard literacy, their first thought was, I just want to teach my content area. I don't want to be a reading teacher. Right. I don't teach ELA. I don't know how to, how to teach reading and writing. Right. And so one of the things that I can still remember this, one of the things that, um, that they used as an analogy, dis- uh, talking about the literacy, literacy is not one more thing added to the teacher's plate. Uh, But it really is the plate. It's where you're putting all the different things for your class. And and the idea of literacy is not just can I go in and read a a reading selection and comprehend it, but it's can I I read, can I write, and can I speak using things that fit within that discipline and fit within that area. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to move toward as we work on this concept of disciplinary literacy. Completely agree. So in the episode today, what we're going to dive into as we talk about literacy, we're going to look at some specific ways that you can take vocabulary and you can integrate vocabulary activities uh, into your classroom, uh, into your content area, because regardless of what content area you're teaching, we know that vocabulary is going to be a big part of that. And so one of the things that we'll delve into today, uh, Mr. David Anderson, who's an English teacher uh, in my building, Uh, is always looking for new ways to engage students, always looking for ways to come up with projects that are going to not only um, 
keep the students engaged, but allow them to think and to think uh, critically and make connections with the content. And so uh, this activity that we're talking about uh, is based on a, uh, a challenge that the New York Times does every year. It's called the 15-second video vocabulary challenge. Um, easy Google search to look that up and you can find information past submissions that they've had. Uh, they actually provide word lists and then uh, the challenges for students within a certain age range in, in K-12 education um, to make a 15-second video um, just explaining what that word means. Um, so as we started with that concept and that idea of, of a 15-second video clip, it kind of the, the project kind of grew a little bit because um, the New York Times provides those lists of vocabulary words, uh, but, but Mr. Anderson actually had uh, some knowledge of, of some vocabulary lists that have already been produced. The Berkeley Unified School District in California, um, they've, made an effort to, they've made an effort to increase vocabulary instruction, and not just vocabulary instruction, but the explicit teaching of vocabulary in their district. And one of the things that they did is they developed a list of Tier 2 general academic vocabulary by grade level. So starting all the way down at the kindergarten level, they have a specific list of academic words that could be used in all classes, um, academic vocabulary, and then they have lists for each grade level. And by the time you get to the high school level, they kind of simplify those. They put them together 9, 10, 11, 12. And so what, what he did is he took those lists and we use those as kind of a basis for his vocabulary challenge in the classroom. Uh, now, the work in the work in the uh, Berkeley Unified School District it's really um, it's really pretty impressive. You can go online, and if you do a Google search for that, you can find a lot of their information that's been posted online. But what they did is they they developed these vocabulary lists. Um, to go along with the Common Core standards, they took into consideration their local assessment um, items that they had created. They looked at state test released items. And so by doing that, they're looking at what kind of words do students need to know to be successful. And traditionally, I mean, that's that's been done by districts in the past. I know in ours, we've done it where, you know, back in the world of SLOs, we've, we've had that uh, vision of shared attribution, but we would take a list of our top 100 tier two terms grades nine through 12 and we said everybody must explicitly teach those throughout instruction and you know whether you agree with it or not there was a growth throughout throughout the school year just because you are explicitly showing what these words are and how they relate to your specific content it wasn't meant that i have to sit there and teach a whole vocabulary lesson but being very cognizant of the idea that when these words present themselves in my class, for example, evaluate in math, I took the time to actually dissect what evaluate meant and the steps that would follow. So my students, every time they saw that word, evaluate, they knew that there was an actionable step that, that they could do specific to math. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that we want to talk about moving forward before we get into uh, this project and actually how it was broken down um, Included in that information from, from the Berkeley Unified School District, uh, based on the work of Dr. Kate Kinsella, um, we have a list here of some things that are, are basically just items that don't work in vocabulary instruction. I have to admit, I've, I've been guilty of using a few of these in the past, but just going through some of these, you know, the incidental teaching of words. So as you're working through and, and talking about the content area that you're trying to develop that day and you come across a new word, just incidentally teaching that, not considered a very effective strategy. Uh, posing the question to the class, hey, does anybody know what uh, this word means? 
copying the same word several times. If we go back to that, uh, you know, one of those old practices of having the students get out the notebook paper and just copying that word down several times. Uh, having students look it up in a typical dictionary, or we could even expand with that today, like doing a, an internet search for what's the definition of a given word. Um, not typically very effective. Copying from a dictionary or a glossary. Uh, having students put the word in a sentence after using strategies like look it up in a dictionary, copying it several times. Any type of activity that doesn't require the students to use some deep level processing. So a word search with vocabulary terms, not going to have a real high level of return, fill in the blank type items, uh, not any deep processing or application happening there. So those are typically not real successful. Um, just straight up memorization without any type of context is another one on the list. Uh, asking students to use context clues as a first or only strategy. And then finally, another one, this has been a, a, actually a strategy that's worked well in, in one context, but not so much in vocabulary. Um, we've had a lot of success in our English department recently with the, the sustained silent reading, the SSR, but passive reading as a primary strategy uh, to learn vocabulary is, is typically not very effective. So those are some things that we're trying to kind of move away from. Well, and I mean, if you look at that list, uh, you know, the, it all references just recollection or remembering. Mm -hmm. At what point are the students actually engaging with a word, applying a word, seeing a full contextual understanding of the word? I mean, this is just visually being able to recall what the word looks like. Uh, but I mean, there's real no deep understanding that's occurring at any level of this. Now, I'm not, I would maybe argue that there, there does need to be some level of being able to recall the word and, and recognize that word, especially at a younger age. But as we start getting into what, you know, this disciplinary literacy, we have to go beyond just being able to say, hey, I know what that, I've seen that before. We now really need to start diving into, okay, I see it, I know it, and now I can apply it and use it. Yeah. Uh, and that's not to say that, that anything on this list should never be used under any circumstance. For example, I'm, I'm looking at activities that don't require deep processing. When you talk about a, a word search, for example, if that's just something that's done um, just for familiarity with the words as an extension at the end of, of the direct instruction, the explicit instruction, um, that's not so bad. We just don't want to look at some of these things as your primary method of instruction exactly. when we're working on vocabulary. So, um, Moving on from there, um, we want to talk a little bit about uh, some ways to explicitly teach vocabulary. And, uh, Alan, I'll let you jump in a little bit on that one. You know, there, there's been different, different strategies that I've seen, um, talk to people in other districts. I've seen great things in our classrooms. And it all comes down to providing an opportunity for students to learn the word at different levels. So I think the list that we just went over, like we said, was very uh, scratch the surface, quick recall, quick just sight referencing of the word. But we really need to go into that next step of, okay, understanding what the word means, uh, how to say the word, apply the word, see the word in use, and then put the word in use. And so there's actually uh, multiple strategies, and I'm, I'm thinking of one specific that we've discussed. It's, it's like a seven-step independent practice with words. And so it starts with where the teacher has the responsibility of providing the learning instruction, 
uh, and then going down to where it's the student's responsibility where then they're taking ownership of that word and the usage of that word. Yeah, that, gra that gradual release of responsibility. Yes, exactly. exactly. And so it, the steps themselves, the introduction to the word, obviously anytime you have a new word, just kind of saying it, that, that's helpful because the students are kind of hearing that in context, but being explicit about your introduction of this is an important word, going into the explanation of what that word means. One thing about that I think that is very helpful too, the teacher's explanation of the word, the teacher can be very intentional about making sure that they're explaining it in student-friendly language as opposed to their initial experience with the word being that if it's looked up in a dictionary or an online search where they have no idea what the context is, the teacher can really take the time to frame that for, for long-term retention. And, and relate it to their content. Mm -hmm. So as we start talking about that tier two and tier three vocabulary, it now becomes relevant to what they're talking about in class that day. Mm -hmm. And then going into the practicing with the students and, and using it in, in a specific sentence. So rather than just telling the kids go off on you know a fair model, while fair models are a great resource and strategy that can be used, just telling a kid, write that word in a sentence. If they haven't had or built up the the understanding of the word to, to then present it in a sentence could be you know pretty difficult yeah. which then leads to students using a google search to then say you know what does this word mean in in regards to anything and then they really don't know anything about it going from there then they're creating an explanation of their own so as the teacher has now started that gradual release model students are starting to develop that critical thinking around that word they're starting to explain it within their own words in which then they would create a non-linguistic representation of the word after they've described it. Then they would engage in an activity where they could use the word flexibly. And then it, the final step would be the teacher requiring an accurate and flexible use of the word, which would be the ongoing support and reference of that word in class, which then reinforces our idea of engaging students in the reading, writing, speaking, and thinking of any given content which is in fact disciplinary literacy. So when we look at like the root of where can anybody start with this idea of, of disciplinary literacy or DL in any, in any context, vocabulary is like the stronghold of all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this, as you talk about these seven steps, this, um, this movement from the teacher having the, res the higher degree of responsibility as they focus the lesson and provide that guided instruction down to the student collaboration and then you know, the independent use, I mean, this is based on a lot of educational research. If you go all the way back to even Robert Mar Robert Marzano back in the, um, you know, the early part of 2000, the 2010s. Um, also, the Dr. Kate Kinsella, the vocabulary instruction routine, uh, Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry's gradual release of responsibility. There's a lot of research basis on on where this whole uh, this whole process comes from. But let's take a look at a little bit at the application. Well, real quick, I do want to add to that there, Chad. You know, a big piece that we've focused on even in our district is now with EL populations growing in some of Northeast Ohio. Mm -hmm. This model is being adopted by, by districts that really want to focus on explicit vocabulary instruction to provide more support to those EL students. Mm -hmm. So rather than just using the term and expecting, you know, it's already a struggle for English as a, you know, the second language. Were, yeah. 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 But so this has been a model that's been adopted by many of those teaching EL students to, to kind of bridge some of that gap. And, and so it, we found that the strategies that people use for EL, teaching EL, it is, it is just as effective in our gen ed classrooms. Yeah, that's outstanding. Uh, what we want to take a look at moving forward is uh, how does this relate to our 15-second uh, vocabulary video project? 
So if you think about this gradual release, um, basically what happened at the beginning of this lesson is developing that word list. Uh, we went through, and actually I did some time collaborating with Mr. Anderson on this. We went through those vocabulary lists, looking at that tier two academic vocabulary that's not only going to benefit students in, in his English classes, it's going to benefit them in other disciplinary uh, areas as well. But we were able to go through and we wanted to specifically choose words from that list that we thought, number one, would be import, important. Obviously, they're all important, but they would be words that would be helpful for them to know. And then number two, which ones would lend themselves well to the project also. Uh, some words are a little bit easier to make a video representation of than others. So we tried to kind of handpick those to get started. Being intentional about which words you use, I mean, which is which is a large step in vocabulary instruction itself. Right. And so then in, in the English class setting, uh, at the beginning there was some direct instruction with these words talking about why are they important. Um, they come from a list that's academic vocabulary. These are words you're going to encounter in your classes in school. And so there was some, some of that direct instruction, explicit instruction at the beginning to build that foundation. So at that point then, as we start to move through that after that direct instruction, then we're moving into now how are the students going to start working with these vocabulary words? And that's where the 15-second video comes in. Now part of the thing with the 15-second video that's important is students could easily make a 30-second, 45-second video. But when you condense that down into that, that requirement of 15 seconds, it's really important because students have to make sure that they're concise to the point, and everything that they put in their video helps to describe that word. And you really can't do that without a, a pretty good handle on the word, a good mastery of what the word means. Right, because when we don't necessarily understand something, we, we over we try and over-explain. Over-compensate, Trying to feel yeah. like we're hitting every angle of it. Yep. Uh, man, i got to tell you, I saw a couple of these in action. Uh, they were phenomenal. I mean, some of them really turned out well. Yeah, what we did from the technology side with that so just as as it always is in the classroom it's good to get it's very good to give kids options but just to set the context a little bit uh, in our one-to-one -one setting students are working with ipads and so that's gonna kind of shift a little bit what are their options for video creation we gave them really three options but the starting point was the clips app and the reason for that uh, the reason for that it was purposeful Clips gives you a, a really basic way to create a web-style video pretty quickly. And so in my role as a technology specialist, what I was able to do is put together just some basics for students who have never used Clips before, put together some basics. We were able to give them some background on that right from the beginning of how to use that app. And then what we also did is gave them two other options. If a student was familiar with iMovie, we didn't have the time to necessarily delve into all the features in iMovie, but if a student had the, the experience with that and wanted to use it, they certainly had that option. And then if we really wanted to simplify it, if there was, you mentioned maybe for some of our emerging learners or some of the other groups that we didn't want them to get overwhelmed with the technology side of it, uh, they had the option of just a straight screen recording. Mm -hmm. So using a screen recording where you can do any kind of audio and sound, that works just fine too. So they had all three of those options. And what we found is that really there wasn't one of those three that you know kind of stood out as the most popular kids were choosing from all three of those so giving them those options were worthwhile because they did they did choose uh, a lot of kids cho chose from each of the different categories there and so at, at some point they were still integrating technology it was just at what level did they feel comfortable in doing so that's exactly right exactly right and the other thing to keep in mind if you're in a if you're in a chromebook district 
you know, screen recording could be an option if the students are using Chromebooks to create these. But another thing that's out there, uh, using uh, Microsoft's Flip would be another good way to do this where you could use a web-based tool. Screencastify could be another, another way to do that to use some web-based tools. Uh, it's hard for me to call it Flip. I still think of it as Flipgrid. Yeah, we, uh, used, yeah, we <laughs> used it when it first came out. And, and now they've shifted that over and shortened that up to flip. But there, there is actually an advantage to that when you, if you do this 15 second video uh, contest. If you use Flipgrid, one of the things that's built in when you create, as the teacher, when you create the grid for these videos to land, what you've basically done is created an archive for those. So if you're talking about words that are important for student, student use as far as tier two vocabulary, if all those videos are found on, on a, a grid and flip, what you're able to do then, you can open that up to students and they can go through and easily uh, preview everybody else's work and then you end up with an opportunity to share that work. And, and especially for some of them that were really, really good, it's a nice way to showcase that work. Yeah, and, I, and I've done that with other projects in math where you know, if, if students were creating, it was honestly a good way to kind of brainstorm as well uh, because you already know who the original creator is, but if somebody's stuck, has you know a little bit of a mental block, and they're kind of seeing some of these other ones created, then you know that kind of gives them that that opportunity to review some of what their peers are doing, rather mm -hmm. than maybe just in the full classroom setting. Because obviously we're seeing that, but then they can see the final products and what they look like, and who knows, it might it might spark some ideas and interest and. And go from there. Yeah, and another thing too with that, it's, it is really nice when you have an opportunity to share work across all your classes. So kids who might be in a different block or a different section, you know, you can open up those grids and let the kids take a look at all of them, and especially highlight some of those exemplar ones as well. Flipgrid's not the only way that you necessarily can archive all of that. You know, the other thing that there's a couple other possible ways to use the technology to give students access to all those videos. If the students are sharing those videos through Google Classroom, putting those in a Google Drive folder that's accessible for everybody, that would be another way that they could they could share those out. And then probably the one that would be the cleanest long term, but also the most work for the teacher would be setting up a Google site where you're archiving those with thumbnails on the Google site. And Downside to that's the workload involved setting it up at the beginning. Right, the front load. But I mean, man, if you could have all that, you're you're essentially creating your own classroom dictionary. That, to reference yeah. all of these, you know, tier two or tier three terms yeah. that if everybody has access, you constantly have student created evidence that, that reinforces what those words mean, that anybody can access at any time, that you can continue to reference throughout the course of the school year. Yeah. And I, one of the things that just, just sprung to mind right now as, we, as we're speaking about this is that if we're talking about those tier two words that are just general for an academic setting, you know, that's one angle that you can go with this, but I'm thinking about it, let's say, maybe a little bit more content specific when I'm talking about a biology class, potentially. What a cool resource that would be if you had a page that had, let's, let's take cell parts, for example, and all the different cell parts were covered with these video clips that students have created over time that were accurate, that were well done, that even in the future students could go back and reference be a great way to reinforce that content and reinforce those vocabulary words. Yeah, and I'm even thinking, you know, if, if part of your project is having to review those other words, it would take all, it, would, it wouldn't put the weight on every single kid to do every single word along the way, but then they would still have to engage in, in those terms, if, you know, if somebody else did it, but you'd obviously have to have that incorporated in your expectations of your students, but then, it, then it's not all being put on one where it's kind of glossed over where you're saying, okay, I'll write the word, I'll just define it, you know, and we fall back into that trap of just the assumption that they're gaining something by doing 
you know, the formal defining of a word. Right, right. One other thing just to point out as we, as we finish up uh, with that project, this was not something that was done on an individual basis. So to try to prevent overwhelming students and giving them something that just a task that maybe is, is difficult for them to conceptualize on their own. Especially starting out. Yeah. They were working in, they were working in small groups, groups of two and groups of three. And that kind of added a little bit to, I think, enhance the videos when you have multiple kids appear in there and and the way that they went about doing that. Um, So that was, that was really a nice thing to see. So as we keep going and we when we referencing these words, you know, we, we want to add the full context of a term for students, provide the opportunity to not just hear the word, understand what the word uh, represents, but also have a visual and auditory representation of that word. And so we actually wanted to kind of discuss a couple resources that, that would be good for really any classroom, um, two of which would be either Flocabulary and Edpuzzle. Yeah, and both of these, I think, especially coming through the the COVID era where we were looking for as many digital resources as we could find when we were in quarantine settings in, in March of 2020, or even when we were in hybrid settings or some students were still learning virtually for the 21-22 school year. Um, you know, starting with vocabulary, one of the things that's really nice with that is as far as like the auditory side of it, we all know that idea of, of hearing a song and then having a song that's kind of in your head. Right. And so in the middle school science classroom, I was able to integrate vocabulary pretty well with certain, you know, specific keywords for science. And one of the things that I found is that, you know, the students, after they would watch that video a couple different times and that song would start to get in their head, all the lyrics of that song were, were um, very carefully devised to be able to, to support what that wor- those words are about, what that concept is about. And in some cases, it would include more than, more than just one term. So, uh, you know, using that content, uh, it, it's a good way to get started. And, and the one thing about vocabulary, there's a couple different ways you can use it. Uh, in some cases, I would use it kind of as a front load just to get them used to some of the terms that I was going to explicitly teach. Right. Or in some cases, I would use it on that independent end where it would give them a form of practice separate from me after I'd done the explicit extru- instruction at the front. And that was a way for them to kind of move forward working with the terminology. Yeah, and I and I know that vocabulary is actually offered for pretty much all the core contents at this point. Yeah. I When I was teaching math, I actually used it when it first came out so the resources were a little more limited than they are now i, I mean now they have pre-lesson and post-lesson mm-hmm. and during lesson type resources uh, but i really used it when we got into some of our more uh, dense type concepts one i can really think of is like functions mm-hmm. and so that's there's so there's so many different aspects of the of functions themselves but when we were going over that i would like you said kind of front load that lesson with what a function is and there was always a wrap and and the kids always think it's corny, mm-hmm. but I ended up playing it four or five times, and then by the end of it, you know, they're all singing along. Right. And then we would do our post and say, okay, from this, what was the visual representation of the word domain? And and while you know some of the kids are like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. If I'm pairing them up, some will say, oh, that was when they did this in the song, or they'll right. sit there and start playing it back in their head. And so just trying to build a little bit of that context before you like before you go in and start teaching everything more explicitly it just adds a little bit of that uh, lightened layer where kids can kind of engage in the in a more of a safe manner with those words that they don't already know yeah i it's funny you mentioned with where the 
you know, the idea of some of the kids would kind of start out, you know, just kind of laughing at it and saying, right. this is cheesy. I don't really, Good I don't really. But then pretty soon you'd see like kind of foot tapping in the back of the room. Again, play it again. And, yeah, I want to hear it again. And sometimes with some of the songs too that really fit well with some of the concepts that we were working on. Uh, I would choose those, and then I would tell the kids, now, if this, you end up later in the day where this song is stuck in your head, just think to Mr. Hoffman, hey, thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the other thing that I really like in vocabulary is that they have a lot of different ways for the kids to practice with the terminology. So, for example, one of, one of the lessons that I would use frequently in middle school science related to bacteria, and it wasn't just looking at that two-minute video clip, but then along with that, the vocabulary cards that they have, you can then choose from a set of words. You can either use all of them, you can limit them down to a smaller amount, and the vocabulary card actually has them use their own words to construct a definition for that. And then there's also pen tools where, on, especially with an iPad on screen, they can right. actually draw and annotate, which is a really nice feature. Now, the drawing side of that, not quite so easy to implement when you're working in a Chromebook setting. But with an iPad, a really, a really nice tool there. And so now you're talking about that kinesthetic angle as well, mm -hmm. um, along, with, along with not just only the, the, the verbal and the auditory, but you got that kinesthetic as well. Yeah, and I mean, it, it was, it's definitely a la carte as far as what you want to use. I'm, you know, I'm thinking when you brought up Chromebooks, how it, some of that might be difficult to use the, the full realm of it. But most of the stuff was PDF printable, mm -hmm. so you could always take it off and have the kids you know, engage through pencil paper. That's right? true. There's, it's, it is multifaceted. There's a lot of ways you can use it. Yeah. You know, one other thing, too, just to kind of finish up on vocabulary, just from a fun standpoint, one of the things that they had added uh, as I was teaching middle school science was the build a beat activity, which was pretty cool, where they would take the different, uh, they take the different vocabulary words that are part of that topic and part of that section, and they, they ask and have kids identify them in a variety of different ways. And if you can get five in a row correct, it adds a different instrument to your beat. In the end, there's five different levels you're trying to get through without making any mistakes. And I would find a lot of kids that they would get through it and miss a couple of the instruments, and they would want me to reset their progress so they could start again and practice them the again and put them all together and, and build the beat. And, again, you would see as some of the kids were working, you would see like kind of heads bobbing and, and feet tapping on the floor and stuff. And they, they did probably wouldn't admit it so much at the middle school level, but they did enjoy the beats and they enjoyed the music side of it. I was thinking they didn't, they'd say that more at middle school than they would at high school. <laughs> you know, I'd have them come in. They were, they're too cool for school, but you know, by the end of it, they, it was at least something to kind of pull them in that, that broke up uh, the, the basic routine that we always had in class. So yeah. One other thing, just to, to as we finish up with that, another thing that I did over the course of, of three school years, I worked on adding enough headphones to have a classroom set of headphones. And the reason why that was important is uh, vocabulary was not always an independent activity, but if you do have those headphones, it gives you that option where if you want to make that part of a, a day where the students have choices on activities that they can pick from, if you want to make that independent practice where you're not hearing those beats coming from all corners of the room, having headphones is a pretty nice way to help the students zone in and focus in on what they're doing and work independently also. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the other, the other resource to, you know, reinforce with our visual and auditory representations would be Edpuzzle. I know that when we hit kind of the lockdown and then we, we came back and we were a very more of a hybrid model with students in school students out of school we had like an alternating schedule it was it was a mess but we could keep things very consistent as far as the instruction we provided through Edpuzzle and so I, I think at this point 
not just fully relying on that would help uh, students kind of engage more. But Edpuzzle has the opportunity, you know, to create videos, pull videos, use already created videos that on Edpuzzle on YouTube, and and then add in questions or checkpoints that um, that you think would be relevant to the specific content in any given video. And so with vocabulary instruction, I know that this was great just as like an intro. You know, if you want to front load or you want to do it in in lesson video, you could then do stops and say, hey, this term, what does it mean? Put it in context. What is it representing? And, and so those were those were different strategies that we did math during our hybrid model. Yeah, I think Edpuzzle is a great tool, and there's a lot of different ways that you can go with it. But I think the key is just the focus from the instructional side. Edpuzzle is a great supplement in a lot of different ways to your lesson, to your teaching for the day, but it just can't become the primary lesson. Right, and that's where we kind of got killed during that hybrid model was trying to provide everything at all times, both synchronously, asynchronously. Mm -hmm. So if it's a resource you use, then of course I think it would be more beneficial than saying it's the primary source you use. Yeah, yeah, and I have a, there's a couple of different examples from a science standpoint, and really this one would be able to fit with with any disciplinary area, but especially for things that have more visuals to them, uh, ed puzzles can be great. So one of the things in, in biology and life science topics, we would use a lot of the Amoeba Sisters videos. They go through a lot of different concepts relating to cells, uh, cell processes, and a lot of things that relate to overall biology topics. And so for the students to be able to visually see those things, and then if you're uh, expertly crafting your questions to identify key points in that video, it gives you a chance to kind of keep track of how well are the students processing that information, and then after watching it, are they understanding it? Because if they're answering that question at a point in the video where they've just watched it, and then they're still answering it wrong, obviously the information, either they didn't read the question correctly or the information isn't really settling with them and they're not understanding uh, the concept that's being asked or being talked about. Uh, as, you're, as you're working through with that video content, the other thing to look at too is how am I gonna, how am I gonna take my, my content and how am I gonna frame the questions? Like what type of things am I gonna ask? And that, that information can be used a couple different ways. The teacher can be using that information to try to assess how well the students are grasping the instruction from the day if you're using that video and those questions toward the end of the period. But the other way that it can be used too, if you have a day where the kids are making some student choices and doing independent work, it can also be a way for students to self-assess because if none of the questions are open-ended or free response, the students can pretty easily assess how, how well they know a certain topic and that can happen in any subject area, any subject matter. Yeah, which is great for if you're expecting the student to kind of work through something independently. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to put out there as well, and this was an idea that was de I developed actually during, during the quarantine part of, of COVID and then also during some of the virtual instruction and the hybrid, hybrid instruction in the fall of 2020. So for the virtual classes that I would teach, those were done 100% online and they were done over a Google Meet, over a video conference, and so they were recorded. And what I started to do right from the beginning of the school year then is because every day I had a virtual class that was taught in that setting and recorded, I started posting those, uploading them to Edpuzzle, and then posting those online. And I didn't make them as an assignment, but I made them as an archive so that the student could access any class period. And the other side of that, the data that was really nice is I could see exactly when the student watched it and how much of it they watched. 
So if a student was absent um, and didn't attend the virtual class that day, or if a student just needed more help, I had a handful of students that I would know almost without fail on days when we had maybe review for an assessment, something like that, they would go back and I could see exactly who rewatched those videos. So it's just a way that, depending on your content area and if you're trying to have some type of track, have students engaged with certain material, there's a number of things that you can put in there that that data that you get on the back end is pretty useful and pretty helpful. Yeah, I'm thinking back. I mean, obviously we used that as as an assistant with our primary instruction, which, like I said, was a, was a negative. But really, yeah, the, the, the fact that it was always accessible to the students, mm-hmm. so if I said... You know, we had we had to go back, remediate something, or they were absent, which which happens quite a quite a bit at this point. To always have that available, where I'm not feeling the need to sit down and, and reteach everything along the way, mm-hmm. that, that's a great great idea. Yeah, uh, the last thing that I would say, the only thing that Edpuzzle sometimes can be a little bit overwhelming for teachers is when you delve into the library of videos available. There's a lot there, and a lot of them are different variations that teachers have taken a video, copied it, and made their own questions. And so you get the same video with a lot of different variations. That can be a little bit of work for teachers to sort through those and find a good starting point. Very rarely did I find one that I liked in its entirety with every question that was in there. I at least had to take some things out and add a few things of my own. Sometimes I took everything out and just saved the, used the video and then kind of started fresh with my own questions. But that is the one thing that's a little bit of a challenge sometimes is to sort through all that. But if you're using the videos in the right way, and as we've mentioned, that is your primary form of instruction, it can really be a great tool. Well, and I would even recommend if, if you have the time to create your own video or if there's a video that maybe you reference off of YouTube, search it through Edpuzzle because it links with YouTube and you can pull that video over and then and then add your questions or your checkpoints in from there. So yeah. at least then you have a starting point rather than feeling like you have to type in a topic and then review and audit whatever is presented at that time. Yeah. So one last resource to talk about, and this one actually, uh, this comes from a conversation that I was having with our instructional coach, Julie Toma, the other day. Um, I asked her as a, uh, prior to becoming an instructional coach as a, as a history teacher, what was her favorite or some of her favorite vocabulary activities and resources that she would use as, as um, a history teacher. And one of the first ones that she brought up was vocabulary.com. And what she liked most about Vocabulary.com, this web service, it is a paid service, but there are some, there are some free aspects that you can use. So Vocabulary.com is designed for students and not so much designed just for uh, dictionary definitions. So when you go to the site and put in a search for a vocabulary term, you're going to get multiple definitions, but what the beauty of them is they're put in student-friendly language. So that's a lot of what we do as teachers is try to take our, our key content vocabulary and translate that into student-friendly language. You're going to get multiple, uh, multiple terms that come in that student-friendly language right when they do the search, which is awesome. Yeah. Now, uh, along with that search bar that's part of vocabulary.com, if you do have the paid subscription, they have over 13,000 curated lists of vocabulary terms for a variety of different topics. And one of the things that I think really stands out for your English language arts teachers is that they have some of them that are directly connected with novels. So that's a pretty cool thing if you're teaching a novel in your, in your English language arts course and you can go out and pull a list of vocabulary that's already been curated in advance that's going to fit with a lot of the key terminology in that novel. Along with the 
along with the curated lists, teachers can also make their own custom lists and assign them to students. So that customization is really a nice feature too. If you can set the words uh, that you're going to put in there. And there's a, there's a handful of other things there that I think are useful. Uh, some front end activities where students are able to um, take a word list that you've assigned to them, scan those words in advance, and then identify the words that they don't know. That gives the teacher a great starting point for that explicit instruction. Uh, and then one other thing too that's really cool is there's a quick list feature where you can take a document. This could be a reading selection. This could be a historical document. Paste that document in there and then vocabulary.com will go through and pull out words that kids are typically going to struggle with. Wow. So you can actually take a document and then from there create uh, you know, your vocabulary list from that. So that's a great example right of... There's planning ahead. I mean, trying to you know, anticipate yeah. what your students are going to struggle with so you can pre-teach that ahead of time. Yeah. So as we're as we're thinking about some of these resources, again, as we talk about vocabulary, edpuzzle, vocabulary.com, all of these have different levels of paid subscriptions, but then some of the features can be used for free. But it just depends if you if you haven't used some of these things in the ways that we've discussed, uh, it's worth a try. And then from there, it might be something that leads to a building level subscription. It might be something that leads to a classroom level subscription, depending on how much you see that fitting in in your daily classroom routine. Thank you for joining us on the Teaching in Tech podcast. We hope you found this episode to be informative and might be able to take some of this material with you to enhance your instruction with students in the classroom. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and write us a review. You can find previous episodes of the Teaching in Tech podcast with Alan and Chad on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.